You're listening to The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation on Monocle 24, the programme that puts the future of working life firmly in the spotlight. This week we're exploring the impact of COVID-19 on some of the technological developments that stand to fundamentally alter our working lives. In January, we went to Davos to the World Economic Forum, where we learned about advances in artificial intelligence and remote working that were predicted to change where and how we work in the future. As the coronavirus pandemic has forced individuals into their homes, many of those changes which loomed on the horizon have been accelerated. Today, we're going to ask how workplace technologies have facilitated productivity in a time of unprecedented stress and constraint. We're going to learn more about the role of designers in helping individuals negotiate the complicated human technology interface and dig into some of the tools that will help workers keep abreast of developments and keep resilient in the marketplace. We'll also ask if new technologies and the new patterns of working they promote are going to stay with us as we move into the post-pandemic world. That's all ahead on this week's edition of The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. We begin today with the digital anthropologist Rahaf Harfouche. In episode two of The Way to Work, she outlined some of the key technological developments she thought stood to shift how we work in the future. Among other points, she stressed the need for human-centric tech, issues of information management at an organisational level, and a need for any and all developments in fields including AI to be situated within transparent ethical practices. It's something of an understatement to say that the world has changed since we first spoke to her back in January. So has she been surprised at the way technology has been integrated into working life? I haven't really been surprised. I find it very interesting because I think there's always this like initial uptick of something new. Everyone thinks like, I don't know if you're experienced with the pandemic, but at least from what I observed, initially people were like on back-to-back Zoom calls and Zoom cocktails and all of this, and then like it kind of fizzled out. I think we are quite attached to the status quo more so than we think. And the status quo doesn't necessarily mean that we go into the office. It just means, you know, the attitudes and the beliefs that are at the heart of work culture. And what I found really interesting is that despite the fact that the technology has been around for a number of years, we're still seeing like the same challenges that are being faced, which is the lack of trust, this whole idea that if I can't see you working, then you're not actually working. I've seen that increase in several different organizations. I was reading an article about companies that are now using things like keystroke trackers and web browser trackers to make sure that you're actually working. So I kind of wonder about how we're using technology to design a certain attitude of work that maybe in itself is a little bit problematic, (laughs) especially, you know, when you talk about creative work, especially when you talk about trauma, when you talk about sort of the psychological stress of an uncertainty of what we've gone through. So I think we're still in a bit of a holding pattern. We're going to need another scare for people to connect the dots that, hey, this might be a bit longer than we're anticipating. So just putting our meetings on Zoom might not be enough. We might actually have to think about how we're creating an organizational culture that's digital first, instead of just digitizing all the stuff we did in person as a last minute stopgap because we have to. If we're gonna be like this for the next year, let's say, or the next several months, 
then we need to actually move into digital first created experiences for talent. And that requires a dramatic rethink of resources, expertise, performance, but that requires a rethink of everything. Rahaf Harfush there. We'll be hearing from her again a little later. As we've just heard, sustained disruption demands a broader revision of the human technology interface and the role of digital technology in the workplace. Bruce Davidson is the CEO at GoSpace AI, a company that uses AI software to effectively allocate space in work environments. With the onset of COVID-19, this is an issue that's gone from important to critical. So what has Bruce identified as the core areas of development in recent months? Here he is. We've seen years of digital transformation happen overnight, effectively. And in most cases, IT teams have risen to the challenge and enabled their workforces to effectively communicate and collaborate virtually. In fact, I would say the majority of the CEOs that I speak to are amazed at how well they are functioning without any office space. This has forced companies to sort of reassess the value of physical office space, with many deciding to forgo it completely in the future, or in in many cases, consider it ancillary. In addition to the sort of rapid acceleration of these virtual workplace technologies, and those include engagement and well-being technologies, which in fact, in some ways, when you're in the virtual environment, leaders are more willing to engage with these sort of well-being and talent and uh, engagement apps, and more so than when they're tied to physical space where employees are often hesitant and leaders were reluctant. Where I see the biggest change is this idea of augmentation of the human and partnering with the human users. So, you know, we see this uh, dichotomy between the individual and the group, right? And the pandemic has showed that we can't just expect people individually to self-organize effectively, efficiently, and safely. You need to have frameworks. And these frameworks, they're very complex, and we need AI to help us manage these frameworks. While many are getting used to digital workspaces and finding some relief in services designed to generate and promote well-being, This last area of artificial intelligence as a technological augmentation to the human worker feels challenging. So are we, as individuals and organisations, keeping up to speed with this shift well enough? What's happening right now is there's a a lack of understanding about technology. And I think in general, there needs to be far better education, both for the next generation, but also for this generation, the concepts behind these systems, because there's a lot of fear and a lot of it's not actually well-rooted. There is definitely some reasons to be fearful, but for the most part, it's not rooted in reality. And and I think we're a long ways away from this general artificial intelligence that runs everything. And in most cases, it's a very, AI's practical applications are very specific. It solves something very specific and it does it with a human operator to allow them to get to something much faster than they would without it. So I think the more people are educated as to the benefits and, and understand conceptually how these systems work, then I think a lot of this fear would subside. I think also it's very critical that there's honest and open discussion about big data mining and these, these methods of looking at big data for patterns because they do hold prejudices and they will. And it's just because of the fact that if there has been prejudices applied by human operators over the history of time that the data was collected, then obviously a machine looking at that data will interpret that same prejudice. 
right? Because it'll see it because it will have happened. So, you know, that's why we need to understand if we're looking at big data, we have to allow for other forms of simulation technologies to work with them. So it's, it's this example, that's an example of a, a piece of education or something that could be communicated with, with people. So they start to understand what are the risks associated with different forms of augmentation and, or machine AI. Bruce Davidson, CEO of GoSpace there. Technology stands to facilitate productivity, augmenting the efforts of individuals, but individuals are still at the heart of a successful organisation. John Mader is a true polymath whose work across sectors and disciplines has given him perhaps unparalleled insight into the impact technological changes stand to have on the way we work. Currently the Chief Experience Officer at Publicist Sapient, he's acutely conscious of the caveats and conditions we've heard about today, especially the need for the workplace and the way we work to remain human-centred. So what does John make of the global pivot to remote working? First of all, I worked for three years at Automatic, which was at the time the largest all-distributed tech company. So I lived this remote thing we're describing, work from home, distributed work, and I actually left it because I could see the pros and cons around it. And the cons really struck me as problematic. The cons being that it's hard to come to consensus and decision-making, even if you use video, even if you use chat, even if you use all these sort of modes of technology that lets you connect, you can't connect deeply. And I think that's the technology that's missing. If I were to bet on the one thing that's missing, it's the smell technology. <laughs> because trust is built through smell, humans to human, and we don't have that yet. All this remote technology for connecting is not good for working together is my feeling, is <laughs> my strong feeling. If you're a software developer, it's perfect. It's made for you. It's made for incremental changes in a large code base, quick sign off, Low-risk things can get done fast at scale using collaboration technology. High-risk stuff, it's really hard because it's missing smell. You don't know how to trust you or trust in groups. We're wired to do that work. And so we're always going to be hedging on the state of, I don't know, let's kick it down the can. Let's wait a few more months for this to happen. So remote collaboration is good for remote cooperation. It's not good for collaboration. And the technologist who will say, we have a VR space or a super AR chat space, whatever, it's still missing something. And not being a Luddite here, I can use all these technologies. I have my video, whatever studio, whatever kind of thing. I can live stream, et cetera. I, I, I get that. But it's for incremental little tacit pieces of buy-in that when you add them all up like a long tail, it adds up to an audience, but not to commitment. So John isn't convinced that today's atomized conditions with individuals confined to digital-only spaces stands to fully replace physical workplaces. How then should the private sector be responding to the developments COVID-19's precipitated? Well, you know, I came from an engineering background. I was in design and art world. I did a few things. Big monocle fan, you know, for that side of monocles past. But when you think about it, the thing I learned in Silicon Valley because by working there in venture capital, it reshaped my thinking. It made me realize how tech companies are successful because they iterate. They build, test, learn. They build, test, learn. 
they aren't stuck in a dogma if they're really good at what they're doing. And the problem is that in our world, when we say something's landed, we believe it'll stay that way forever and just cope with it. The real tech way is to say like, let's see what happens with it. Let's adapt to it. Let's change it a little bit. Let's figure this out. That part is the interesting part of COVID-19's new onset of technologies. Let's try it out. Let's try this. Let's try that. But it worked. That mentality is what tech mentality is about. And I think we're missing that point. Are companies then being underambitious in their use of technology? And are there unforeseen issues that stand to trip up early adopters without clear strategy and knowledge of the pitfalls? You know, the great thing about living longer past the age of 20 is that each decade you reflect on what you said in the past and realize you were kind of right and actually more wrong. Like in my 20s, I was at MIT. I was advocating for designers to code. I was completely unpopular in that era. It was the 90s. Now it's much more common. In my 30s, I was focused on business and like how business and design and technology have to come together. Now it's very common, like product management, like this kind of like melding of different things. In my 40s, I thought that, you know, change management as a leader is a critical factor and how depending upon who you are, if you are a maker versus someone who's used to just doing talking as a leader, the makers have a hard time becoming leaders. Now in my 50s, I'm really interested in how wrong I was in each decade because I wasn't considering privilege. And privilege meaning every type of privilege, tech privilege, society privilege, job privilege, reputation privilege. So going back to your question of, should it be the employees like more cha- being more change ready? Should it be the companies who should be able to make the employees change faster? I think that each employee, each human being is so different from each other. However, if you have a company where everyone is the same, like, oh, hey, you know, how's your wife doing? How's your kids doing? You know, there's all these biased things that work really well when you have an all-male, all-privileged company. You don't have to worry about stuff. So the company can do things at scale. And the individuals have enough wealth or network, whatever, where they can do it on their own. But if you have a diverse company of people with all kinds of backgrounds, all kind of different family situations, all kind of different histories, there is no one size fits all. So companies have to listen to what the employees, their human beings are experiencing. And the power of technology means you may be able to cover all of them in a unique way. That's a good part of employee data. If you can actually serve them better in their work lives, they will have a better work experience. That's what I'd like to see happen. But because most of the tools are built by privileged individuals, they don't design them or build them for them. Bias is built into our tools. That's a problem. John Maida there. You're listening to The Way to Work. Today, we're exploring the technological advancements precipitated by COVID-19 and asking how they stand to serve individuals and organisations in the post-pandemic world. As we've heard, the relative success of remote working throughout the pandemic points to the positive impact of digital workspaces, but shouldn't necessarily be confused with the replacement for physical environments and the collaborative work that they facilitate. Let's turn again to digital anthropologist Rahaf Harfouche. 
Earlier, she suggested that successful adoption of technology in the workplace requires a concerted effort to shift organisational culture. So how does she feel individuals and organisations have handled the technology pushed upon them by COVID-19? Have workers demonstrated agility in adopting the technologies they need to use to work from home, for example? And have organisations responded in kind? People always say to me, the technology, the technology. And, and I always try to tell them, like, the technology itself is not the problem. It's always human resistance and human attitudes and human beliefs and human use cases. That is always what ends up killing a technological solution. So I think it actually demonstrated a capacity that we never had because suddenly all these organizations who many of whom people I spoke to personally said, well, my office would never let us work from home suddenly had no choice. And what do you know, working from home was working for them. And yes, there were bumps and, and missteps and things that worked and things that didn't work, but that was to be expected because they just had to do it really fast and it was a bit rushed, right? I hope that what's happened is that we've now created enough of a use case study to show people that there could be a level of flexibility. Given that we've seen this degree of flexibility and agility on the part of both employers and employees, does Rahaf think enough care is being given to how technology is integrated, to how individuals navigate the human technology interface? This is where it gets into more of the socio-complex factors where we ignore it and we say, well, the technology is just the technology that, okay, well, the technology has always been there, but what is the technology going to amplify? What is it going to facilitate? What is it going to make harder? Those are the questions that I'm interested in because I worry that many employers and many workers are just like, oh, now we're digitized. Now we're working from home and they're expecting their workers to work as though they're in the office when the reality is is like we are in the middle of an incredibly disruptive pandemic with suboptimal conditions not including kids at home but just the psychological stress of having to constantly read about tens of thousands of people dying so all of that has an impact that we need to also talk about and instead it's like well people are talking about whether or not you have a slack channel or not and sometimes i feel like we're missing the human-centric context of the conversations that we should be having as to how to navigate this period in a way that makes sense for us and our mental well-being and the type of work that we're supposed to do. Rahaf Harfish there. At the heart of the questions surrounding the integration of technology in the workplace lies the human technology interface. As we've heard, we haven't yet arrived in the brave new world of the singularity. Machines stand to augment human work, not replace it. But how can we ensure the changes that new technologies bring to the workplace take place harmoniously, stay human-centred and don't leave anyone behind? Linda Maury Burrows is the Principal Director at Maury Smith, an architecture and design studio that specialises in the workplace. So how has she tracked the response to the pandemic's shifts in how we work amongst her clients? There has been a panic. People reviewing how they work and how their business runs. It is very generational. Some people, I'd say sort of more 50s or late late 50s, who think it's amazing working from home. You know, perhaps they've got lovely houses in the country with gardens and stuff, and they think, that, you know, this must be the way ahead. And then you get the under 30s who perhaps working from shared rental accommodation with no garden perhaps working from their beds. And when you remind the CEOs or the senior execs of this kind of diversity of their own workforce, they have to take this into consideration that people still 
have a desire to come to some kind of office or workplace. Of course, it's going to be different from what it was before. It could be that it, it's very different, but people might end up taking the same actual area, the same quantity of space, because they might need different kinds of space. It won't be rows of desks. It would be different kind of facilities that we'd be providing. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be an office and it doesn't mean that they won't need a good size of space, a good accommodation. How else does Linda see the workplace changing? One of the things we've noticed, because we've come back quite early, is that the people coming back are still obviously having to connect remotely to clients and some of our team who can't come into the office. And actually doing Zooms and Teams in an open plan environment is a terrible idea. Even with headphones and stuff, it's, it's just disruptive to other people. So we've quite quickly found that we need much smaller spaces or little quiet rooms. They can be very small, not like little meeting rooms, but smaller, quiet, comfortable spaces that people can go and do these kind of calls and meetings. And I think that's going to be definitely a big change in the workplace is going to need to be a lot more of these spaces and less the rows of desks. As individuals return to the workplace, an increase in remote conferencing and calls is inevitable. But what about even more disruptive technologies? How have the public health requirements of the pandemic caused Linda to reflect on the role of design in managing the human technology interface? We are talking about these kind of systems and technology whereby even in our own office, we're doing a sort of a low-tech version of taking people's temperature with the laser guns as people come in. And we're looking at integrating that in, for instance, some of our clients we're working with now into the security systems or with the, the technology with the eye or, you know, in a little bit like a more sophisticated version of the airports. But what I did speak to a client this morning about saying, How are we actually going to manage that on the human side of things? Let's, for instance, say that there's somebody sat at reception and somebody's temperature is too high to let them in. How are you going to cope with that? How are you going to deal with that? Are your reception or your concierge staff going to be trained about managing people's expectations about not being allowed into the building, for instance? Is there going to be a security guard going to come and rush out and take people off site. So that's the kind of human side that I think that we are going to be debating over the next weeks and months with technology specialists and various services specialists to try and understand what's available and what could make it a safer environment and a better place for us all, but still that has the you know, the human side to things. Of course, I want to be in a safe environment. I don't want to feel as though I'm in a hospital environment with everything too clinical everywhere. And I certainly don't want to feel as though, you know, cameras and technology is taken over. I want the technology to be there, but I want that to be almost subliminal and just to be there to allow us to then be human beings. So where do architects and designers sit in designing for the future? We have always designed and are increasingly aware of designing future-proof buildings. And though that is a very easy statement to say, with technology and the advances of it, it has been very easy to do with the infrastructure and the cabling systems and the way that we integrate. And obviously with most people going towards cloud base, 
systems in storage and rather than, you know, hardware, even though obviously there's a hardware somewhere, I think the shift had already happened, but that it has accelerated beyond belief with the virus. And we will continue to try and get the balance between technology and a human environment which is what we need. It's a little bit like in the home, isn't it? Which I always bring back to a very sort of domestic scale because sometimes we're working with corporates and designing for thousands of people. But at the end of the day, what you've got to think about is the individual. And if you can think of a smaller cluster, like a family environment and a home, everybody's homes now are totally technology-led. You know, when you walk into the home, the home is still a warm, comfortable environment. You don't see cables everywhere. You don't, you're not aware of technology. And that's the same with the workplace. Linda Maury Burroughs, Principal Director of Architecture and Design firm Maury Smith there. While the public health demands of coronavirus have pushed adoption of remote working technologies and accelerated or repurposed AI technologies, as we've seen with GoSpace, these are far from the only areas to have seen an increase in demand. As we heard in the last episode of The Way to Work, the economic fallout of COVID-19 has cast millions into a state of unexpected precarity. For resilient individuals focused on maintaining their relevance and keeping their skill set up to date, a willingness to engage in lifelong learning has become more important than ever. While technology stands to augment the workplace, it also offers individuals the tools they'll need to maintain relevance in a world spinning with change. Gautier van Molderen is the founder and CEO of Perlego, a subscription-based digital online library of academic and professional textbooks. Here he is. Pelega was built out of a personal pain point in mind, which was expensive prices of textbooks. Textbooks have increased by more than 847% since 1982, or three times the rate of inflation. So basically, I was at uni, I'd buy one or two books worth £300, read one or two chapters of the book and never use it again. So I was using Netflix for movies, Spotify for music, and I thought, surely a subscription service for textbooks should exist. And that's basically what Pelego is a simple space where you can find all your core learning material for the price of a single book. What's really interesting with the education industry specifically, only about 1% of it has been digitized, right? It's a $160 billion industry. It's absolutely massive and very little of it is online or remote. And in light of everything going on with COVID-19, we've seen a massive acceleration in pure digital offerings. So I think it's a very exciting time to, to be in education and offer 100% digital solution. In terms of kind of upskilling and reskilling, what's really interesting is about half of our users are not even students. I see the biggest trend in education right now as being lifelong learning. The fact that you might change your career, the fact that you might want to upskill or reskill. And having a solution like Pelega where you can find a book about history, a book about coding, the breadth and depth of content is super powerful. And we can see that just in our user numbers. So what do the numbers say? Our traffic's doubled, our engagement's tripled. We've done some really big deals with the likes of Vodafone. If you're a Vodafone user in the UK or in Europe, you got six weeks free of Pelego, kind of as a gift from them. And what's really interesting is we've also seen a, a small correlation of people who get furloughed who start using Pelego as well. So a lot of people are using this extra time at home to increase their learning and actually to, to reskill in, in new fields of study. So the two most interesting ones I've noticed looking at the data is psychology is taking a huge amount of uptick. 
but also coding is absolutely massive. So a lot of people are reading coding books on Pelega right now. How then do these professional users break down? Are people focused more on developing new skills than updating existing ones? I think we've got kind of two sets of users, professional users. We have a lot of people who use Pelego for soft skills, so the best books in presentation and leadership. So a lot of people are seeing as that as an opportunity to grow. When we talk about coding specifically, our biggest trends, if we to look at that cohort, the three most popular languages are Java, Python, and C++. So that's what the three kind of main languages of what people are studying in terms of the programming languages. So what does this mean for Perlego? Have the changing conditions that prompted this uptick in user numbers also prompted conversations about developing the service? So we talked to a lot of our users and what's really interesting is lots of users have asked for collaboration. So when you go on Perlego right now, you can learn or study by yourself. And a lot of people are like, hey, I absolutely love using this. It'd be really cool if I could see the comments or work directly with my peers or friends or the wider community on the book. So one thing we're looking at building is going from a one-side reading experience to a multi-side reading experience, as I actually think collaboration and learning from others is also a huge, huge important component to learning. And imagine if you could have that on the book. So you're reading a book and then you can see, oh, this is what my manager highlighted. This is what my boss said I should read, or this is what my two of my friends who also work in coding have said was really interesting. So that's kind of something that's come back as one of the things we should develop and people are very excited about. So that's something we've put into our product roadmap. Gautier van Molderen of Palego there. We've learned today a little more about some of the opportunities and challenges that come hand in hand with advances in workplace technology. While digital workspaces may yet lack the facility to replicate the collaborative potential of authentic human interaction, remote working technologies have allowed millions to keep working, even whilst confined at home. New technologies bring design challenges, but they also offer individuals the tools they need to build and sustain career resilience. Looking towards the future then, and thinking about some of the value shifts the pandemic's precipitated towards community, for example, as we learned on the last edition of The Way to Work. Is it right to say that, far from highlighting the obsolescence of shared physical workspaces, the pandemic has in fact highlighted their value? Here's Rahaf Harfush again. I think that what happened with the pandemic has actually shown us that we need human connection and that the office is a great place to facilitate relationships and connection and collaboration. Now, does this mean that the way that we designed offices before with those horrible open plan layouts, like is that the right way to work for creative work? I don't know. Does that need to be changed? Probably. Do we need to make post-pandemic changes for people to stay safe? Absolutely. But all of these people saying, well, this is going to eliminate the office completely. Like, I think the opposite was true. I think there are people that can't wait to get back and get out of their house and <laughs> go to a place to meet with their colleagues and to do good work. So this is also, again, a call for human-centric design for some of these office places, right? Because I know that many people said, when I go back to work, when I go back to the office, we're going to do things differently. We're going to facilitate spaces differently. We're going to run meetings differently. We're going to plan our days out differently because now we understand that it's not just about coming to the same place and like working. It's about coming to the same place and collaborating and coming to the same place and engaging and connecting. And that's a very different mandate than I think the way that we've thought about a lot of offices, which is just get these people together and everyone is their head down and is working. So I actually think that there will be a large variety of people that will say, I really can't wait to go to the office. And some people that will say, I really like working from home. And hopefully the way forward will be 
this flexibility where there'll be certain tasks for teams where you'll be in the office together and there'll be certain tasks where you can be working at home and it will be about what works best for you and what creates the best condition for you to do the type of work. Maybe our definition of the role that the office plays in our workflow and the role that home plays or the role that remote work plays, maybe we need to renegotiate some of those borders to make it make sense instead of having it be binary. Instead of work from home or work in the office, it'll be work from home and work in the office. What then is the message to individuals and organisations as they restructure for the post-pandemic world? Instead of thinking about how the world will change, recognize that your teams have already changed. We've all been changed by this in some way, a lack of sense of safety. People have family that have gotten sick. People might have gotten sick themselves. So like recognizing how that change has taken place and how you might have to navigate that recovery through technology because we can't sit face to face for a while that should also be a priority instead of just, oh, well, like now we have a Slack channel so we can go back to having our all hands meetings on Tuesdays. Digital anthropologist Rav Harfush there. That's about all we have time for on this week's edition of The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. We've heard how artificial intelligence has found renewed purpose in solving new public health issues in the workplace And we've learned more about technological solutions that address challenges individuals face and facilitate lifelong learning. We've also heard a cautionary note. While the office might be closed for now, good work requires collaboration. To sustain resilience in the post-pandemic world, we'll need to engage with designers and not lose track of the importance of the individuals at the heart of every organisation. Join us next time on The Way to Work when we'll look towards Fuse Digital 2020, bringing cutting-edge thinkers on the future of work together to design practical solutions. Keep up to speed and find new episodes at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts in the meantime. And find out more anytime about the work of the ADECO Group Foundation. Simply visit adecogroupfoundation.org. That's all for this edition of The Way to Work. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks very much for tuning in.